My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Good to be with you here this morning. Glad you braved the elements to get here. You know, as somebody who grew up mostly in Wisconsin and Minnesota, I, I am fascinated uh, by the near panic and even the threat of a snowflake. Was it, anybody venture into a grocery store on Friday? That was mania. Oh no, what's going to happen? Then you get up the next morning and you're like, hmm. But glad to be with you here this morning. I'm especially glad to jump in on this series we're calling Life Without After God. And Pastor James has taught the last few weeks, got us going. And I've been, I've been itching for my chance uh, because this is actually one of my favorite books in the Bible. And I, I, when I tell people that, sometimes they're like, you're a little weird. This is depressing. You know, how do you, and I, and I, I love it because it's just so honest. And here's this, this guy, he calls himself a teacher, or it might, you know, might be a better way to know him as a philosophy professor, but he, he wrote this thousands of years ago, and yet it could have been written today. I mean, I think if you took his teachings, kind of mix it up a little bit or condensed it a little bit, added some local culture flavor to it, this could be an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal. It really could. It's that relevant. And, and it's because our nation now is, in, you know, is a, as a post-Christian culture. We're, we're actually almost experimenting with this idea of living with, as if God didn't exist. And, and the teacher from 3,000 years ago is saying, been there, done that, go ahead, give it a try. But I just want you to let you know, I've been there, I've, I've been down that road. And he comes to the same conclusion over and over, right? He uses these phrases, life under the sun, which is life without God. And if you do that, you're going to go down these roads and they're going to end up in the same place. It's going to be meaningless. It's going to be like chasing after the wind. You're going to grab for it and it's not going to be there. Well, today uh, he's going to get to an assumption that we make about life, especially if you're trying to live life without God, life under the sun, because there's a faulty assumption that many of us operate. And if we're honest, I think we'll, we'll relate to this. It goes something like this. If I could control my world life would be good. And there's a second faulty assumption that goes right along with it. I ought to be able to control my world. Okay, I get a few nods, a few agreements in there. Maybe, if, maybe a few of you have a, have a written, you know, it's like, I don't know. You know, I really believe God's in control. Or, or maybe you're one of those that say, well, I, I like control a little bit, but I'm not a control freak. I mean, not like that guy I work with. You should meet him. Or not like my wife or my husband or my parents or Right? You have somebody else that, oh yeah, that's, that's them, but, but, but not really me. And so I just want us to consider for a moment how much time and emotional energy you give toward managing 
your family life, your other relationships, your job, your hobbies, your school, even maybe church. Think about what motivates that constant effort to try to make everything work the way you want it to work. Is it not a concerted effort to get everything in your life, again, everything, your family, your relationships, your job, your school, to cooperate with your idea of how life should go? Maybe I could put it this way. Are you not, through your efforts, trying to arrange life in a way that minimizes the impact of unpleasant and unwelcome surprises? I think if we're honest, I mean, gut level honest, we like control. Now, I need to put it a little more firmer than that. We crave control. Because we live in a world that constantly threatens our sense of safety and security. Now, many of us succeed in establishing at least some semblance of control for a while, maybe even a long while. We call it planning. Or if you're really sophisticated, strategic planning. We think ahead about the consequences of our actions. We maneuver in a way to avoid pain and trouble and pity the fool who gets in the way of our plans or our ideas of how our life ought to operate. And if you don't think that's you, think about how you reacted the last time you were late for maybe to go to work or an appointment. You hopped on Highway 26 and boom, you ran into traffic right there at Cornelius Pass heading downtown. Say any choice words? Or maybe you have a full day on your calendar and you have what's supposed to be a short doctor appointment and there you find yourself after a half an hour or so seemingly abandoned in the waiting room. Or you think, I'm just going to run into Winco just to get a couple of things. And you hit to the checkout and you realize there's only two checkout open and the line is long. Or again, were you there on Friday? Every line was long. Or if you have anything you have to get done, I mean anything you have to get done at the Department of Motor Vehicles. <laughs> That's a whole alternate reality there. When you boil it down, so much of our focus is on trying to control time, especially future time. We have the sense that our time here on earth is limited and we've got to make the most of it. And we have now abundant technology to help us in our quest to manage time. I mean, we have clocks everywhere, including one staring me in the face right now so that I make sure I end on time and don't waste your precious time. (laughs) Clocks everywhere, but having clocks on walls isn't enough, right? We strap them to our wrists so we have a clock with us wherever we go. Of course, we don't even need wristwatches anymore because we have these fine machines, I mean, these machines, how how much of these machines really are about helping you master your time? I mean, we have maps with real-time traffic and then directions that down to the minute can tell you the fastest, most efficient way to get where you're going. We have hyper-local weather apps. Do you have one of those? I have one called Dark Sky. It tells me when it's going to, precipitation's going to come down to the minute. I mean, I've been in meetings like in a coffee shop and it's pouring down rain outside and somebody says, oh man, I'm not going to want to get out in that. And I bring up my app and I say, oh, it's going to be done in five minutes. <laughs> and it is. It's amazing. And we have news apps that we, we can know what's going on anywhere in the world at any given moment. 
And speaking of the news, do you notice how much the news these days isn't about re- reporting what's going on or what has happened, but about so-called experts predicting what's going to happen next? It's a fascinating when you look at it through that lens. I mean, for example, last week we had the Super Bowl, right? It wasn't like, it wasn't like within 30 minutes of that game being o- over, ESPN had an article predicting who is going to win the Super Bowl next year. We don't even have time to celebrate what just happened or political coverage. I mean, they're obsessed with examining potential outcomes of decisions that haven't even been made yet, as if any decisions are made in Washington, D.C. <laughs> and do you know that the 2020 presidential election is already on its way, and there are already polls telling us which candidate can beat which candidate, even if they don't even know their candidates yet? <laughs> we have an obsession about the future, and we don't escape it in church circles either. I mean, think about the inordinate time that many of us give to end times prophecies, trying to predict when Jesus will return, even though Jesus himself said he didn't even know. And the result of all this future tripping, my friends, we are drowning in anxiety as a culture. We are. According to recent research, anxiety is the number one mental health issue in North America. An estimated one-third of North Americans regularly experience debilitating anxiety. We spend over $42 billion a year on anxiety-related issues. And that's just the direct costs. It doesn't account for how much anxiety impacts other health concerns. We know that people with anxiety issues are three to five times more likely to visit a medical doctor and six times more likely to be hospitalized. And just to be open about it, I'm one of these statistics. I have lived most of my life with high levels of anxiety. They they tend to to churn right in here, you know what I mean with that? Just boiling, or or it gets right up in here, I get knots right up in here, tensions to the point where it actually spurs migraine-level headaches. Had one last Thursday, probably because I was wondering what you all would think about this this morning. (laughs) And I've had different seasons of high stress where that anxiety has bubbled over into full-on severe panic attacks. So I've spent a good deal of time and energy digging into the root clauses of my own life, and, and I spent time with some excellent mentors and pastors and counselors through the years, and they've spoken into it. On the positive side, what I've learned is a lot of my anxiety is related to my wiring, that I'm designed this way, in that I have a very active mind, I have a high attention to detail, and, and I have a knack for strategic thinking. I can gather just amazing amounts of information, then synthesize it and categorize it and put it to use, anticipating future outcomes. I'm good at that. My, my wife Amy and I, we, we have jokingly call this my panic early impulse, <laughs> which basically means before you're even thinking about it, I'm already freaked out. <laughs> It's like this early morning radar that's constantly active. It never shuts down. Whether I'm awake or asleep, it doesn't matter. It's going. Now, here's the deal. When I am empowered by the one who made me, I am really good at what I do as a pastor, as a counselor. But when I'm powered 
by my desire, my craving to control my circumstances, and especially to try to arrange my future for my benefit and to avoid safe, you know, to, to find safe places, I get just, I get full of anxiety. Maybe you can relate. And just to be clear here, Planning is not the enemy, okay? Planning is not a bad thing. Anticipating and preparing for potential outcomes falls under the category of wisdom, the scriptures say, especially in the Proverbs. In fact, one of my favorite Proverbs, it goes like this. It says, take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. There's some encouragement from the scriptures for you. Learn from their ways. Become wise. Though they have no prince or governor or ruler to make them work, they labor hard all summer. Why? gathering food for the winter. They're, they're planning ahead, if you will. They're anticipating. It's wired into them. It's wired into us. The question is, when is good planning become planning that is trying to control the outcomes of things? And you know, quite frankly, control isn't a bad thing either. I mean, consider what the Apostle Paul called the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians. You know, the, in other words, the outcomes of a God-directed life. Maybe you know the list. Love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. The question is, is when does self-control become over-control? So thankfully, this isn't, we're not alone in this. It isn't a new struggle. So the teacher, our philosophy professor in Ecclesiastes, wrestled with the same question. And we find his reflection and his important conclusion in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And so if you're not already in there in your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. Or as always, we'll have it up here on the screens. So Ecclesiastes 3, beginning in verse 1. For everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to cry and a time to laugh. A time to grieve and a time to dance, whether you have rhythm or not. Go for it. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to turn away. A time to search and a time to quit searching. A time to keep and a time to throw away, the source of many a marital argument. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be quiet and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate a time for war, and a time for peace. It's a beautiful passage. It's a, fun, it's a poem. And, and I think, you know, there's a few of you in here, maybe, you know, if you have, especially if you have gray hair or no hair like me, you're already humming the tune, you know, the famous one from the birds, right? Another thing these are good for, (laughs) silly antics. But it's a beautiful passage. Whether you hear it through a song or you're just reading through it, there's this cadence with it. There's this ebb and there's this flow, right? And and we read it and and you get this sense of, ah. And I think that comes from, that what this passage reminds us of is that there's an order to the universe, there's an order indeed to our very lives. And that's comforting for a little while. Because when we start to dig in, 
uh, 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 pretty soon a disquiet kind of bubbles up from the depths of our being. Take, for example, this line here. Uh, there's a time to be born and a time to die. There's, there's something settled in that because we know it to be true. Yes, born, die, we know that. And we're fine with it and we're comforted by it until we want to have a baby and we can't get pregnant. Then our attention turns to, how can I make this happen? Or maybe you're already pregnant and you want to make sure that you have a healthy birth, that, 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 that have a, your baby comes out healthy. Well, what do you do? Well, you, you, you get going with things. You eat well. You exercise. You have regular doctor's appointments. You have ultrasounds. You have birthing classes. All good things. But is it enough? How do you know? Something still nags and bothers how can you know for sure that you've done everything you need to do to have a healthy baby? And I say, well, the answer is pretty easy. You get out this little machine and you Google it. <laughs> the Google will have the answers, right? Or maybe it'll just let you know all the things you weren't even thinking about, weren't even aware of that could go wrong. Maybe this idea of being born isn't so restful after all. And what about a time to die? At the end of this last year, my 95-year-old grandmother died. On Thanksgiving Day, it was her birthday this year, and we celebrated her as a family. It's a wonderful time. And three days later, she died in her sleep. I miss her. At the same time, what a way to go, right? I mean, I want to die like that. A long, good life just after spending time celebrating with your family? Yeah, sign me up. But I don't get to decide when I die, and neither do you. Can you feel the disquiet that starts to bubble up? Especially when you start to ask questions like, well, when am I going to die? How am I going to die? And I think the most important question, will it be painful? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm not that afraid of death. I'm afraid of pain. And soon we begin to try to push out death, right? We, so we start to exercise. We take vitamins. We go on a keto diet. We, we, we do our annual checkups. All good things. Except maybe that keto diet thing. <laughs> All good things. Now I could go on and on down this list and with every one of these, we could run into trouble. Maybe this nice comforting poem isn't so comforting anymore. And I would say that's because of this. It's because we have a first impulse. When we run into any one of these places here, our first impulse is, I got to make happen what I want to make happen. I got I, I to decide. And you know what? In life under the sun, as the teacher puts it, you do have to decide. It is up to you. You are the one to arrange your life. There's a famous poem. It's written by William Ernest Henley. It's called Invictus. And I think it sums up well the under the sun perspective. He says, he writes this, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgeonings of chance. My head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. 
And that, my friends, is like the anthem of our time. And I love how it's, it's honest. You know, it, it's, it's a black as a pit from pole to pole. I mean, we don't see, we don't know what's going to happen. Whatever gods are going to help me, under the clutch of circumstance, under the bludgeonings of chance, he's facing honesty. There's no one here to help me. I'm on my own. And then there's this sense of, of I'm going to make it happen. Yeah, you can't do anything to, to shut me down. I'm the master of my fate. And there's something very attractive about that. Ah, yeah. Until it doesn't go as you want. Until you run out of all the options. Until you're left with nothing. And the things that you've built out are now torn down. And your strength is spent. And your vision grows dim. You realize you ultimately have no control over the outcome of your circumstances. Only the illusion of control. And that leaves us in one place. The same place the teacher takes us. It's all meaningless. We end up in a futility and despair. And I think that's what fuels the question that we encounter in verse 9. It's a question that he repeats throughout the whole book. What do people really get or profit? What's the profit for all of your hard work? What's the point of it all? And if you're following through here, you know the answer to that question is nothing. You get nothing. In the end, you have nothing. It's like grabbing for the air. You grab it, you can't get it. And so our first reaction is, I can make this happen. Our, our second reaction is, I can't do, make anything that I want happen, and so why bother trying? Maybe that's where you find yourself today with a sense of helplessness against the circumstances in your life. They're overwhelming and you can't do anything about it. There's a third reaction that many of us have, and that is, well, let's turn to God. I'll turn to God. God will make it better, won't he? Kinda. I mean, verse 10, I have seen the burden God has placed on us all. Well, that doesn't sound very pleasant. The burden, I think in the context here, especially of verses one through eight, the burden that he has on my, uh, uh, is that we, have, that we have to choose, we have to participate in this life, but we don't get any certainty. We have to decide, is this a time to laugh or a time to cry? I don't know, how do I know? I could do either. We have freedom to choose, but we don't have autonomy either. We have to interact with each other. I mean, I may think this is a time to, to build up. You think it's a time to tear down. So we end up in conflict over that. And all of us are bound in this world of events that we cannot ultimately bend to our advantage, no matter how hard we try. And that's because of verse 11. God is the one who has made everything beautiful, and this, this last phrase here is important, for its own time. God calls it beautiful in its time. This, this harkens back to Genesis 1 and the creation account. God's the one who set everything in place. God's the one who started the clock, if you will, and then set it in place. He's the one in charge of time. And it's good and beautiful from his perspective, whether we see it or not. And Verse 11 here also, this next sentence, I think gives us the secret, the mo- one of the most fundamental truths. If we want to understand this thing we call the human experience, this is, this is so key. He has planted eternity in the human heart, 
But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. In other words, we are time-bound creatures with a sense of timelessness. We are finite creatures with a sense of infinity. We are limited, but we can feel the limitlessness of the universe like in our bones. One Bible commentator called, said, said this about this statement. He said, this is a fantastic statement of divine sabotage. I think he nailed it. A fantastic statement of divine sabotage. And I would add, this is the source of the anxiety. This is the source of the disquiet that bubbles up from our depths. And here's what this lets us know. God is the one who put it there. It's designed into the system, if you will. And you might wonder, why would God do that? And we're going to come back to that in a minute. But verse 12, let's read here. He says, for I concluded. So here's his conclusion. He's reflecting on these ideas. And here's his conclusion. There is nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. And people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor, for these are gifts from God. Now, this is a theme that he's repeated. We heard it last week, this idea of eating and drinking and enjoying the fruits of our labors. We need to understand that the pleasure that he's talking about here, that's not the goal. You know, the good life is not the goal of life. He's not talking about hedonism here. He's talking about understanding our place. And and so the good life, as he describes it, is about humbly trusting God's heart and finding joy within the boundaries of time and and circumstance that he is the one who creates. See the difference? Because, and this is where he wraps up in verse 14, because I know that whatever God does is final. He gets the last word, not us. Nothing can be added to it or taken away from it. God's purpose is that people should fear him. And then what a close. What has happened now has happened before. And what will happen in the future has happened before. Because God makes the same thing happen over and over again. Isn't that fascinating? We live in an age, especially of what I would call historical arrogance. That somehow we're better that somehow we know more, that somehow now that we have this technology or we've gotten beyond, we can look at an ancient text like the Bible and say, that was written by people long ago. You know, know, what did they know? They were bound in their times and we have all these reasons why. And yet the wisdom that piles through, because what has happened before, it happened again. What's happening now, it's happened. What's going to happen, it's happened. And this is almost like this is back to that divine setup that God has bound us that we have this desire for progress, and yet God is the one who determines the when and the how. And he's got us a little bit on a sense of repeat. Because every generation, every generation gets the opportunity to learn the purpose of it all. And what's the purpose of it all? That people should fear him. Now this ties into not only a theme of in Ecclesiastes from the teacher, but also in through all the Bible. It's called the fear of the Lord. The writer of the Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. Now, that's, that's not being afraid of God. That's the wrong kind of fear. Afraid of God, you know, the idea is if God is some kind of capricious God who's about to, who wants to zap you anytime you do something wrong. Wrong kind of fear. This is about awe and reverence. This is about understanding. I'm the creature and there's a creator. You know, I'm the dependent one. He's the independent one. And when we understand that, 
we understand that we are designed a certain way. And I would sum it this way. It says we are designed to have the choice to live either dependent on God or independent of God. To live dependent on God or to live independent of God. Now here's what I want to go back to verse 11. That idea of eternity in the heart. This is where this is important because this is where this eternity, this is that sense there's a part inside of us that will never be satisfied with anything on this earth. It's like this infinite hole, if you will, that can only be filled with something infinite. So we have a choice. Are we going to fill it with the infinite God, invite the infinite God to come and live in it? Or are we going to try to control the uncontrollable and fill it with something else? Fundamentally, that's the choice. And that's where this, that's how I would sum up what the teacher wants for us today. Here's how I would sum up his message for us. That for everything there is a season, and every season comes with a choice to trust or to control. To trust or to control. And not, to, not just trust in some kind of cosmic power or trust in the universe. This isn't about stoically accepting your fate. This is about trusting a personal God who knows your name, who, who wants to have a relationship with you and wants to invite you in this grand adventure that he's a part of. You want to get in on it. And, and imagine, think about it this way. What if, despite what your anxiety tells you, God is actually very kind not to reveal what's going to happen next? What if not knowing what happens next, like that, what if what, not knowing what happens next is actually God's way of letting good and beautiful moments become magical, surprising gifts? What if we stop trying to control the future and instead relinquish the future to one who is not only far more capable than we are, but loves us more than we can imagine and is good beyond our wildest dreams? That makes then our job in this moment is to enjoy this moment. Eat, drink, enjoy the fruits of your labors. Enjoy the good gifts that God gives. Now, this isn't just the things that we consider good. And this is about all of it, remember? Because according to the list, sometimes it's mourning and sometimes it's crying. But God, in, God takes all of it and moves, makes it good. Works everything towards good. The apostle, or I'm sorry, there's some good news that we can also know as well in terms of how we can know God's heart is good in this. And that's because this eternal God came and, and, enjoy, and endured every season because the man for all seasons. The eternal God invaded time and space. And he, like us, lived as a time-bound person with eternity in his heart. And he showed us how to live that way. And part of how he lived that way, he revealed to his closest friends. And there's one particular conversation I want to jump into to reveal this. And that's a conversation he had with some of his best friends on the night before he died for your sins and mine. There's some great stuff in here. This is in, in John chapter 14. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, this isn't a don't you dare kind of moment. No, this is a you don't need to. Why? Trust. Trust in God. Trust in me. There is a more than enough room in my father's house. This is talking about now the future. Where is all this going? If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come, and that's in his time, not ours. I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. 
you know the way where I am going. You know, we may be experiencing it kind of going round and round, but ultimately there's a purpose going on here and there is a destination. It's in, it's in God's hands. He's got more than enough room. But I love how Thomas responds. He, he responds in a way that gives me hope because I often think this. We don't know, Lord. We have no idea where you're going. <laughs> Anybody else have that? I have no idea where I'm going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus' answer, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Eyes on Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is saying, eyes on me. Eyes on me. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then he goes on to say something really important, fascinating, especially in light of Ecclesiastes 3. But when the Father sends, or I'm sorry, I am telling you these things now while I am with you. When, when the Father sends the advocate, or in some translations, the helper as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit. This is the good news. I mean, because Jesus came, because he lived the life you and I can't live, because he died the death that, that you and I deserve, he, he then rose from the dead. He now offers a free gift of life in his name. And when we receive his lordship in our life, the promise is that the spirit of Christ comes and lives inside of us. Remember that God-shaped vacuum, that eternity in our hearts? The eternity, the eternal one, the Holy Spirit promises to come and live in that space to teach you everything and to remind you of everything I have told you. Is that not an amazing truth? I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart, because now you have my spirit living inside of you. I get, what I give is a gift the world cannot give. You will not find this under the sun. It does not exist. Therefore, you need not be troubled nor afraid. The Apostle Paul learned this secret. And he talked about it at the end of his letter to Philippians. He's writing from a jail cell facing imminent death. And he writes these beautiful words. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or an empty stomach, with plenty or with little. Do you start hearing the cadence? It's the same cadence from Ecclesiastes 3. One or the other. It doesn't matter where I am in there. Why? Because I am trusting that I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. This morning, I just wonder, whatever season you're in, whatever season you're in, you can know that every, for everything there is a season, and every season brings a choice to trust or to control. What this morning do you have your grip on? What has become too important that you just think, I gotta hang on to this? And what would it look like for you to let it go? Now, this may be something simple. I mean, for example, several years ago, I, I took a step of faith, and it was when I was going through one of my seasons of dealing with a lot of anxiety, and I was meeting with this very helpful pastor at the time, and he challenged me. He challenged me to live without a watch because he noticed that I was more likely to turn my to my watch to tell me what to do next than I was to listen to God's Spirit. And it was true. In fact, by taking away the watch, I had a ready reminder. Because it was amazing how many times I would go, hmm, oh, yeah. What do I need to do? I don't know. Oh, wait. What does the Spirit of God want me to do? And it was a simple thing, but I've never forgotten and I've never put it back on for that reason. Of course, now I've got this thing in my pocket that buzzes and all that. That's a whole other situation. <laughs> but what do you need to do? And, and, and as I close here, the last few minutes that I have, I want to give you two helpful ancient spiritual practices 
been practicing all the way back to the teacher's time when he was writing Ecclesiastes. Two things. One is called Sabbath, and one is called the daily office. Now, the Sabbath, you may be familiar with that word. It comes from the Hebrew word that means stop working. It, it, it referred to a 24-hour period every week where, where you set aside your work or the thing that you do to make your life work. Maybe put it that way. And, and by doing that, you're exercising dependence. Even though your work is very important, you're exercising the sense of, no, God, it really ultimately it's up to you. So 24 hours every week. Now, I realize in our fast-paced, stuff-it-to-the-limits culture that we live in, that's pretty radical. That's cross-cultural. My friends, it's also very good and very important for the health of your soul. So that's 24 hours. That's a weekly rhythm. Every, every week, there's, there's a 24-hour period where I am not working, trying to make life work to my advantage. The second thing, the daily office, is, is like it sounds. It's a, this, is not, this is about a daily rhythm. It's a daily rhythm of prayer habits that help remind us to keep our lives aligned with God. Now, I, I know that many of you in here, you start your day every day meeting with God by reading and reflecting on the scriptures. And that is excellent. Continue that. If you're not doing that, that is the number one thing you can do if you want to have a relationship with God. Now, how many of us would be honest enough to admit that not that long after you close your Bible and get into the busyness of your day, you forget everything you read? Yeah, I do. And so the daily office is about establishing things through the day, habits through the day that constantly reorient us back to, oh yeah, I'm a dependent one. I need to live dependently. So a couple examples, you know, after, at lunch, you know, after, after lunch, before you go back to work, maybe you just take a moment to read a psalm. It's, again, it's an ancient practice. They've been done all through the ages of those who want to know God. The psalms orient us, take life as it is, and orient it towards God. Or maybe at the end of the day, you do another, another ancient practice called the prayer of examine, where, where you take time, maybe after the kids go to bed, or before you turn on the TV, or after you turn the TV off, or wherever you are, you take a few minutes to, uh, to sit with God and then walk through your day paying attention to where the goodness of God came shining through and then you celebrate with God or paying attention to where you turned your attention from God and then you repent and say, God, I don't want to live that way. I want to live dependently. These kind of habits called the daily office help orient our life towards God. And I commend them to you as a way to learn, to trust rather than to control. Realizing that even these habits come with a warning. We will turn everything into an opportunity to control, even spiritual habits. We practice, you know, daily office or Sabbath for a few weeks or a few months, and pretty soon we're like, okay, God, I'm doing my part. When are you going to get busy doing what I want you to do? We try to control God. My friends, he's not very interested in being controlled. It doesn't work very well if you haven't got there yet. So even these habits, but I commend them to you because they are given to us years and decades and millennial to teach us to orient our lives towards God. And if you have your sermon notes, you'll notice there's a link in there with some more information about each of these. It comes from a fantastic website called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. I highly recommend not only that resource, on, but also other resources that are out there. Because for everything, there is a season. And with every, every season, we have a choice to trust or to control. Would you pray with me? Spirit of God, believing that you exist, that you reward those who earnestly seek you. And so that's what we want to do now. And so I just want to have, a, in a spirit of prayer, I just want to ask you once again, 
Where is it that you have your grip on something? Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your family. Maybe, maybe it's your future, the decision that you have to make. And that you're just you're focused heavily on that. You've got your grip tight around it. What would it look like for you to release that and to trust God's goodness with it? I think every one of us has something. And I also want to just invite you here. I mean, it's something that we have every Sunday, but I just want to invite, we have a prayer team. It's on stage right down here, and, and, and they want to pray with you in this. And so if there's something you've got your fingers around and you just need somebody to join you in giving voice to, God, I want to let that go. I want to trust you. Then I would invite you during the next several songs or maybe after our gathering to come and to, to find somebody with one of the badges that says prayer team on it. They want to pray with you in that. And ultimately, maybe you came today and you think, this is my whole life. My whole life is about me trying to make it work. I'm facing that sense of despair, that futility. I know there's more. And maybe today is the day you need to say, Jesus, I want to relinquish my life to you. I want to re- relinquish the grip of my life. You need to pledge your life and to learn there is a life in God's family that's beyond your imagination. And I would invite you to come and, and, and pray with one of these folks as well for that. So again, Spirit of God, believing you are ultimately our teacher. You're present. You speak. We can hear. So Let us hear your voice. We pray believing in Jesus' name. Amen.